Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. I'm Poppy Harlow, and in this episode of Boss Files... So Stitch Fix is a personal stylist um, that's brought to your door. We use online tools so that you can let us know what your size and style preferences are. We'll have a stylist who will choose... Um, five things for you to try on at home. You simply buy what you want, send back what you don't want, just pay for what you keep. Stitch Fix founder and CEO Katrina Lake. She's turned retail on its head and is the youngest female CEO to take a company public. There haven't been a lot of founder CEOs that look like me where, you know, that people would say like, oh, that she's going to be this someday. And so, you know, I don't think that people ever doubted that I could do this, but I think it wasn't obvious. It wasn't the obvious path. Exactly. And she tells me her time at Stanford actually deterred her from becoming an entrepreneur. We'll dig into that ahead. Plus, she lived through sexual harassment, called out a big-name Uber investor for the company's actions and culture, and is calling for change across Silicon Valley. Also, why she says Stitch Fix is the anti-Amazon, and how being a mother has changed her leadership style. Here's my conversation with Stitch Fix founder and CEO Katrina Lake. Cat Lake, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Can I call you Cat because that's what we called you in high school? <laughs> but sure. everyone I see now, they call you Katrina. My team calls me Cat, actually. Okay, it's coming right. to me, so um, definitely. All right. Well, so for people who are listening who don't know, Cat uh, Lake, the founder of Stitch Fix, was before that Cat Lake, my friend from high school, back in the Long day, time. fifteen years old in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the Blake School, and now you have become the youngest woman ever to take a company public. Reflect on that for me. <laughs> it's been a wild journey. I would never have known when we were 16 and doing God knows what right? that we'd end up here today. Although we weren't that wild, let's be honest. No, we were. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, but, um, but no, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing journey I've been on, and I feel very, very lucky, I think, for all of the support that's helped along the way, and also just for all the serendipity of, sure. um, you know, I could never have planned this journey that I've been on, and right. um, it's been such a wonderful one. Give, uh, give us all, for those who don't use Stitch Fix, although more and more people do these days, give me the 30-second elevator pitch. So Stitch Fix is a personal stylist um, that's brought to your door. We use online tools so that you can let us know what your size and style preferences are. We'll have a stylist who will choose um, five things for you to try on at home. You simply buy what you want, send back what you don't want, just pay for what you keep. Um, so it's meant to bring kind of this personal shopping that used to be very much a luxury accessible yeah. to an everyday 
women and actually now men and kids as well. And kids. And we'll talk about that in a moment because that's new. But, I mean, you've talked about the massive depersonalization of retail, which is something you saw while you were uh, in business school at Harvard and which, which, which prompted this. I want to get to the story of Stitch Fix in a moment, but I'd like to start on, on the public offering and taking the company public. Uh, $2 billion valuation, 6,000-ish employees, mm-hmm. nearly 3 million clients. Forbes has named you one of the wealthiest self-made women in America. As you have accomplished all of that and then turning to take the company public, what was the biggest challenge in doing that? Um, the whole process of the public offering was was a challenge. Um, with Stitch Fix, fundraising has always been hard. Um, we built a company that is now doing over a billion dollars in revenue, and we did that using $43 million in capital. Mm. Not because you that was my to. goal. I tried to raise a lot more money, and it was always hard. Um, and, you know, with the offering, it also it is a public offering, and it's a very public event, but it's also a capital-raising event. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, yeah, I learned a lot from it, but I think, you know, we really went through that process and we didn't necessarily come out, um, the day didn't necessarily come out with the pricing that we were hoping for. And, right. um, you know, there was uh, some headwinds there, but I think we came out really motivated by the challenge right. of it. And, like, we've been underestimated before. Like, we're happy to be in a place where you, we're going to prove ourselves. You just and, uh, repeated the quote of yours from a while ago that I, I was going to read to you. And that is, on the first day, by the close of the first day of trading after the offering, Stitch Fix stock price dropped and it fell again the next day. Your response, we've been underestimated before since. Since then, the stock price rose almost 54%. TechCrunch called it an astonishing feat. And all of this as you are making history as the youngest female CEO to take a company public. As you look back and reflect, what's the biggest lesson on that? Um, you know, I think it's resilience and grit is one. Um, I, to be able to have a moment of adversity and to feel really challenged and motivated and to use that as fuel rather than use that as, you know, something that drags you down. It I made you hungrier. It made me, I mean, it made me so excited and it made me so, like, I just felt so motivated to be like, I know the company's worth more. I know we can show this to people. Um, so I think that was a really big lesson. Why did you know the company was worth more? Because clearly your investors didn't, or, or those you pitched to be investors, you said it, it's always been hard to raise money. Why didn't they get it and you got it? It just, you know, it takes time. Like Stitch Fix is a totally different retail concept. It's not stores. It's not an online website where you're looking at a catalog and clicking on things. A hundred percent of what we sell is by recommendation. A hundred percent of what we sell is by recommendation of a stylist Mm -hmm. with technology. Um, And so the business looks a little bit different, but, you know, I knew I come from a business background and I love spending time in Excel and, you know, I I knew the business works like... I love spending time in Excel. (laughs) I do not love spending time in Excel, but that is... I'm not very good at it That is why you are on the cover of Forbes. So I, could, I knew the business fundamentals were there. And I think more importantly, I knew the customer was there. To your point, yeah. we have 2.7 million clients mm-hmm. and the feedback we get along the way and the excitement we hear along the way, like I got to see firsthand that these things are working. And so I had a lot of confidence in the business and still do. I remember ordering my first Stitch Fix box before I had either of my children to my door. It arrived in my doorstep in Dumbo, Brooklyn. And it was this whole new experience of like, wow, this is efficient. Yeah. Um, before we move on to the to the current business growth, there's a picture that went viral 
you held your 14-month-old then son uh, on the floor of the NASDAQ the day that the company went public and you rang the, the, the opening bell there. And Twitter freaked out when, when, <laughs> when Twitter saw this, right? Uh, in a good way. And that it meant so much for other uh, women, I think for men and women who are parents, about, and that wasn't even apparently a planned moment, right? <laughs> what happened? I mean, he's a 14, he, at the time he was a 14-month-old, and so there was no planning. If I had planned to do that, it, it probably wouldn't have worked. <laughs> um, but he, he he was there with me. It was an important day. And um, so he and my husband were there. And for there's a moment before the kind of bell ringing where you um, give remarks to the company. Right. And so for that, I had been holding him and kept him with me. And then he was he was in a good mood and he was happy to be there. So I kind of impulsively kept him with me for what I thought was going to be a special moment and thought it would be great to be able to have him be part of that. Um, and it, the response was amazing. Like I, I never anticipated it and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't smart enough to plan all of these things, but, um, you know, and I, and I understand why, because I think as myself, like I never, this wasn't a goal of mine. Like when we were in high school, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to take up pump company public. Like well, that wasn't. I feel like you wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. Up? That's okay. exactly right. Like it wasn't even on my radar is like, yeah. this is a possible outcome for me. And so um, I think to be able to be part of showing an example of like, this is something that somebody in high school today could be seeing as like a path for her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel so privileged to get to be part of that image um, because I think when we were growing up, I don't think there was enough of that. No, there wasn't. When you described the company to, to people and when you made the pitch to investors, do you think that it was a mistake not to sell it more as a data, data, data company. And I ask you that because the data that you get and the, the number of data scientists that you employ is huge and it's so important. So for people that think about Stitch Fix now, should they think about it as a fashion company or a data company? Um, it's a good question. And I don't know you know, if I should be focusing more or less on it, but it is part of everything that we do. It's part of how we buy product. It's part of how we style product. Um, and it is undoubtedly what makes the company special. Um, but I think my philosophy on it is like, the, you know, people talk about tech companies, like, are we a tech company or a retail company? And my belief is that Uber is a transportation company and Airbnb is a hospitality company and we are a retail company. But what makes all of those companies extraordinary and yes. durable and yeah. sustainable is that we use data and we use technology. What is the most important piece of data you get from each of us? Um, so we get, uh, you know, it's hard to say the exact most important, but we get information from you as you're sharing what you like, what you don't like, what you're looking for. We also get it on the garment. And so we know, for example, that with a men's woven shirt, how far down is the first button? That's an important data point. Um, and then I would say maybe the most important and most differentiated is as you're trying things on, letting us know 85% of people will let us know this is too small. This is too pricey. I love this, but I already have it. They will actually take the time to give you that exactly. feedback. And 100% of the time, we know who has tried what and if they bought it or not, of course. But 85% of the time, we get that incremental information. I I had read and think it's very interesting that you actually do not ask for people's race or income Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of determining what to send them. And that's 
I think especially the income part of that is fascinating because you would think that that would tell you, well, they will or won't buy an expensive pair of jeans. But you guys have determined that's actually not. So we, what we ask is we ask, how much do you want to spend on right. certain categories? And what we find is there are people who are high income who don't want to spend that much on clothes. And we find the people who are in moderate incomes love spending a lot on clothes. And so, that's fascinating. you know, and I don't think that style really correlates too much with race. You know, I think if there are people that like all kinds of different people, like all kinds of different styles, and neither of those is a super helpful data point for us and so um, so we've chosen not to ask so before we get into how this was built and how Katrina Lake is not a doctor today <laughs> so let's talk about kids you've launched a kids line that was actually a, or not line uh, part of the company and that was a surprise to me because I thought but kids don't like care about curating their clothes right what what's the play here yeah, so it's it's really about serving the whole household and so we launched men's um, two years ago now almost two years ago now. Um, and what we found was that there were lots of women that were excited to be able to have the men in their life get, lives get fixes. And I got, I got at least, I got one, I think I got two handwritten letters from kids. It was so sweet, like an eight-year-old girl um, who, really? who, who was like, my mom gets fixes and I really want one too. Um, and it was something where it, it was helping us to really serve the whole household and serve the whole household's needs. Um, so it was kind of that combined with, um, as we started doing focus groups and talking to kids, um, I mean, they are just kids, and at the same time, it matters. Like, they, like what they wear matters about how they feel about themselves. They care. Even my two-year-old son is like, I like red. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't want to wear the blue can, shoes. Can you I get my daughter to shoes. wear a dress? Because <laughs> all she wants, she doesn't even want shorts in the summer. She wants pants. You it's know? so but you're fascinating. Right. But th that's the amazing thing is even at these very young ages, they have their preferences, and they have this belief about what what looks good on them. So is this a play to get new customers through kids or is this a play to uh, get the current customers you have and new adult customers to spend more? It's both. I mean, there's absolutely, we have 2.7 million clients. We share that over half of those clients are parents. And so this is absolutely a way that, I mean, shopping for your kids can, I mean, my son is two or almost two. It's, I mean, miserable to try to shop with him in a, oh, in a traditional no, no, no. setting. It's yeah. like not even an option. And so, you know, that definitely caters, I think, a little bit to helping parents have, you know, kind of a better solution in a better way. Um, but on the flip side also, I think there's a lot of kids out there that would be really excited to get this offering even if it's not introduced to their parents. I guess and it's so, sort of a gift in the mail for them. Totally. It's so fun to watch them unbox, and it's it's a really fun business to be in. I mean, you've got some competition in this space. You've got some competition uh, on the kids' front through Amazon, also through like, companies like Rockets of Awesome. What makes you different? Well, first of all, I think you know, we're about personalization, and we have a you know multi-brand approach. And so, um, with um, with kids, the same way we do in our uh, kind of adult business, we have over 600 brands. Um, we we launched with many many brands and kids also, and so we're able to serve a sportier athletic. If your son only wears Under Armour shorts, for example, that's something that we can do. Um, or if you know we're, we are looking for dresses for your daughter, or looking for um, you know there's a whole range of styles that we can serve, and so we're able to serve multiple price points and multiple multiple styles um, in a way that kind of reflects our broader business. How big do you think it'll get the kids part of your business? What are you hoping for? It's a good question. Honestly, I think our expectations right now, like we're just in a launch phase, we literally um, went live with it. And so, um, you know, we're in a little bit of a watch and see, but I think so far signs have been really promising and exciting. I think the size and fit, we've been able to um, have a pretty good 
first stab at. And um, and I think the value proposition is really there of you know parents who want to. It's kind of like getting giving the best parts of the shopping experience to your kids, where they can choose things. They can say, "I love this," and "I don't love this," mm -hmm. but it's in a way that's like really easy and they really can't seamless. run away from you and. In the department store, right, <laughs> and happened, that too, and rip everything off the to shelves. Me <laughs> at Target the other week. Okay, <laughs> you said, uh, Kat, I'm not somebody that people looked at and said, "Oh, she's going to be a CEO one day." Why? Um, I don't know. I mean, partly it really wasn't my aspiration. Like I said, when I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be a doctor and that wasn't the path I was putting myself on. Um, and, you know, I think the second part is like people sometimes ask me like, oh, was it Stanford that did it? Like you went to Stanford and you were surrounded by all these entrepreneurs. Stanford and, and Harvard. And, and but Stanford is like, you know, meant to be like Larry and Sergey were grad students and Mark Zuckerberg had dropped out of Harvard and was spending time there. I love there. that you're on first name basis with Larry Page. Oh, I'm, I'm not, to be, clear. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear. To be clear, I'm not. But yes, for our <laughs> listeners. But they were all, exactly. So they were all, um, they were all associated at Stanford at the time. And so people sometimes ask me like, oh, was Stanford the place that gave you the inspiration to be an entrepreneur? And the kind of crazy thing is I almost feel like it deterred me from being an entrepreneur. Really? Because I looked at people like, like uh, Larry and Sergey, who were coders who were sitting in a yeah. garage and building a company. And I looked at that and didn't see myself in that. And so um, I just think it took me a while to think that this was a path that was available to me. And I think, you know, the, there is just, there haven't been a lot of founder CEOs that look like me where, you know, is that people would say like, oh, that she's going to be this someday. And so, you know, I don't think that people ever doubted that I could do this, but I think it wasn't obvious. It wasn't Put the obvious the path. Exactly. Tell us about the moment that this idea came to you. Yeah. I don't know that there was like an exact moment, honestly. Like I think I had a thesis that like retail could be better. And, um, it, you know, you look at all the innovation that's happening in all these other categories. And I was like, it's still so hard to buy jeans. And you know, I mean, there just was this feeling of like, no one's even looking at this in a thoughtful way of like how to solve this problem. Um, and so I had a thesis there. Um, but I think that like kind of more electric moment has been was really in the early days from the customer side. So we launched this to you literally did these focus just, groups in Boston, right? Well, this is while you're at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And I and I, you know I was just like I was at Harvard. I was I didn't know anybody in Boston, so it was easy to meet people I didn't know. And yeah. um, and people loved the idea. And I launched this literally to just like friends and people I knew. So we had 29 customers, and we had 35. Then we had 110. And for years, for three or four years, all of our growth was organic. And um, it was just people telling other people. We had a wait list for a long time. And you, you're you at this point where you see these strangers in like Montana and upstate New York and cities you've all never over. heard of signing up for Stitch Fix and loving it. And and you're kind of realizing like this is something's here. Like this really works and people really want this in their lives. And you were going out to department stores and play I mean at the very beginning and just buying up a lot of inventory so you had enough to send out so in um when I before before we launched anything yeah, um beta. I bought yeah and it well it wasn't even even before the beta when I was okay. experimenting I was buying from boutiques but that yeah. was only a couple months and so we kind of launched Stitch Fix in April of 2011 um and at that point we actually already were working with vendors and we were able to buy directly. wholesale and buy directly you put it this way, the, and you said, there's one approach, build it and they will come. The approach that I had was let me get all the people first and then build what they're looking for. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, this was a service that was so different from anything else that existed. And so on the one hand, um, like I remember there was one summer where we had an intern and we were, I mean, we were literally doing everything manually. Like we had everything in Excel. We, every Monday, like me and everybody else at the company was folding clothes and packing out fixes. And I, this intern sat me down and was like, Katrina, I'm really worried about you. This business is not scalable. And the intern told you the business wasn't scalable. Yes. Did you hire that intern? Um, it didn't work out. Oh. <laughs> but, um, I mean, well, so look, I mean, here's the thing is I understand where she was coming from. What we were doing was not scalable. Yeah. It was actually crazy. Like, of course, a business isn't going to work if the CEO is packing out boxes. But what, what you could do is you could know that someday we would be able to have a website that was more fully functional, yeah. that we'd be able to have a warehouse and a fulfillment center where this would be part of the process. And so um, you know, we very much had an approach of like, let's do things a scrappy way and you know, kind of figuring it out manually, and then let's use technology to make that better. And so it helped us to be able to make sure we're building the right things when we build it and not build things that um, are not what the customer wants. More from my conversation with Stitch Fix founder and CEO Katrina Lake after the break. Let's talk about raising money because all of these uh, investors said no to you. A, do you think that's because most of them were men? I think um, and maybe didn't get it because it was purely a women's product. At the yeah, time. it was just a women's product. I definitely think that it didn't help. I mean, I think there were, you know, there were, there was one investor who was actually like we would get to the very last rounds and meet the whole partnership and do the whole song and dance and then get no at the last in the last inning or whatever, which was always difficult. And I had one investor who was really honest with me, who was just, you know, he was like, I get to choose one or two boards. You know, I, I invest in one or two companies a year, which means I join one or two boards a year. And I, I love what I do. I love the companies I work with. I'm like, I, I want to feel really passionate about them. And I just can't feel really passionate about women's clothes. And like, I can't argue with that. Like, right. I want him to love his job. And, yeah. like, I'm not that interested, despite our background in Minnesota. Like, I'm not that <laughs> interested in hunting and fishing. Right. Or I'm not that interested in casual games or, like, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of categories where I also would say I don't want to join the board. And so you can't blame kind of the individual for having that preference. But then you step back and 94% of venture investors are male and have similar preferences. And so I think it, unquestionably it made it harder. But then Steve Anderson said, Yes, and he's one of the first investors in Twitter and in Instagram. How much did he say yes to, and how pivotal was that moment for the company? Yeah, he said he actually said yes early before everybody else said no, so that helped. Um, sure. you, you really only needed one person in the early days to say yes. So he had given us a term sheet for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He was going to put in five hundred thousand of it, and then he said to me, "Here's a list of all my friends who you are angel investors, and you should go fill the rest of the round." And I was unable to fill the rest of the round from his friends. Yeah, nobody else said yes. And I was so worried. I was going to go back to him and say everybody else said no and now we'll, you know what do we do with that with that extra money and he was like, "Oh, I'm glad everybody else said no. It means I get to put in more." And so he very happily put in $750,000 and then we were off to the races. How did he feel on the day <laughs> the day the company went public for a few days after? Yeah, I think I'm, good. he's he's still on our board. He's an angel investor, so I think he's yeah. rarely involved this late, but it's been yeah. such a journey for both of us. 
You've said if you're doing something no one else is doing, you're either the smartest person in the room or the dumbest person in the room. I think we can agree you're not the dumbest person in the room by a long shot today. But when did you realize that? When did you know, okay, I have this. I have something here. Um, you know, the the customer side was always there. Like clients were always, you tell people what the business model is and people always were excited about it. And so that part I always felt confident in. And I actually felt really confident in the business side also. But what- You never doubted? The business side worked. I mean, we would we were able to get better and better at understanding people and getting them to keep more. And I mean, the business worked. And so I, I couldn't understand why we couldn't get fundraising. But in the early days when we needed money, the fundraising part was hard because right. we couldn't get people to say yes. And so that part I doubted. Did you? T- how much risk do you guys take on in terms of, of the inventory? I suppose it was more of a risk in the early days, but is there s- some sort of agreement or was there then that you could send back to the to the vendors what didn't sell? So today we buy it wholesale, we sell it retail like a traditional department store would. And then what happens with what doesn't sell? So the flips, so we turn our inventory over six times a year. So um, a lot of retail will turn about four times, so we're turning quite a bit faster. And so what that means is that we're selling the product kind of faster, we have less risk, um, and what doesn't sell, we work through clearance channels, we have third parties. So and it's so on you to get rid of it, though. It is, yeah. It's, it's all reflected it. in our gross margin. When you talk about taking on risk, and uh, I just, I don't, I don't have a big stomach for risk. I suppose it's getting bigger as I get, get older, but I'm interested in what your appetite has been for risk and how your uh, risk as an entrepreneur and how your upbringing shaped that. Your upbringing in California and then subsequently in Minnesota. I, I, I'm not a super risky person. Um, and, and maybe I feel the same way as you, like maybe my perspective's changed, so maybe I see myself as riskier now, but um, you know, my dad's a doctor in the public university system. He's had exactly two employers his whole <laughs> his professional whole career. Right. Um, my mom's a public school teacher who just retired, actually. Good for her. Um, and you know, so I wasn't in a family where risk was a big part of kind of what we did. Um, and so it really wasn't part of my upbringing. It really wasn't, like I didn't have a big, appetite for risk. But I think the way that I approached entrepreneurship was I'm going to go to business school. I'm, you know, I can be a mediocre student in business school and try to launch a business at the same time. And that was a way that I could make the risk tenable for someone like me um, because I wasn't going to be the person who was going to quit their job and like tinker in a garage. Like I just, I couldn't fathom being able to stomach that. What did they think? What did mom and dad think of this? Did they think it would work? Um, I don't know that I ever asked them. Really? <laughs> um, but they've always been so supportive. And, um, and I think there's actually a benefit to that part. The fact that they don't have a business background, the fact that, you know, they weren't doing a lot of investing. Like in some ways, I think that was helpful because I think, you know, it allowed them to just be blindly supportive of me for being their daughter and, you know, not to have to kind of think about, is this really going to work or not? Like, it, you know, it was outside of their expertise in a way that I think allowed them to be more, um, you know, just supportive yeah. in general. I think as parents now, I certainly look at my kids and I don't think I need you to start the next Facebook, but go for <laughs> it if you want to, or the next Stitch Fix. But I think, you know, you really just want them to be happy. Right. And clearly this makes you happy. Yeah. At Harvard Business School, you said that you felt actively underestimated and that you worked very intentionally to strip the word like from your vocabulary. I did. 
Um, I have no idea if it was the word like or not, but I mean, HBS, they, one of, at Harvard Business School, I mean, one of the best parts of the school actually is that you are forced to be put on the spot. You are forced to learn to speak concisely and to speak eloquently. And, um, and you know, I think that is a big part of how people perceive you. Um, and, you know, I, I showed up as, you know, a girl who's spent a lot of her life in California who said like a lot, who, um, you know, kind of, look like what you would expect for that. And, um, and you know, I, I don't think I looked in the room like, oh yeah, she's gonna be like, you know, X or Y. And so, um, so I, you know, I don't think that anybody would have looked at me in that setting and been like, oh yeah, she's probably gonna be, you know, a public company mm -hmm. CEO someday. Um, and, and, you know, some part of me didn't really care and some part of me wants people to see of lots course, of diverse types of people and of say any of do. these could be a public company CEO. But I also, you know, I didn't want people to think I was dumb. And so, you know, trying to get like out of my vocabulary was one of those things that it's, I did. It's hard. I mean, I, I certainly have felt underestimated a lot, especially in my 20s in this career. Mm -hmm. You know, the, this like weird name Poppy and I'm blonde <laughs> and I'm young. And here I am a, a business reporter at the time interviewing all these CEOs mm -hmm. who are two or three times my age so you do have to be intentional right totally. about that and be do you find you also uh over prepare and to especially in those early days to be taken more seriously yeah i can't remember as much at school but in the in raising money for venture investors i was so prepared i mean i knew i still do now i kind of have to as my job yeah. but i mean i knew our financials inside and out and bill Gurley, who is um yeah investor from Benchmark, he jokes about how the first time we sat down, I had like the three financial statements all linked in Excel and was like walking him through cell by cell yeah. and that he was just, that was not something that was normal for him. And so I, you know, I did feel like I could be taken more seriously if I really knew everything about my business inside and out. And I spent a lot of time making sure I did. You also face what you have described as sort of structural impediments in raising money, that there are elements of it that just seem structurally unfair. And I'm hoping you can share with our listeners the, the story of Chris Saka, famous uh, you know, investor, and uh, beers in the hot tub. Tell me the story. Um, it, it wasn't, so I think there's just, it, and some of these things are starting to change, and I think people are more aware, and it's going to be true in your industry and many of yeah. our, the listeners' industries also, where there's a lot of things that happen in casual environments where deals get done. There's a lot of things that happen over beers. There's a lot of things that happen over cocktails and evenings. And when you have young children, those are things that are really hard to prioritize I and make time for. I no to something tonight. I say no all the time. Exactly. I want to go, but I can't. And maybe your big deal was going to happen at that drink. Right. And so there's a lot of just kind of inherent bias in terms of how business is done and how people get promoted and how things happen. And so the hot tub example was I was at a conference where you know, I was one of 200 people. It was, you know, a sizable conference. And, um, and Chris Saka was on stage being interviewed. And he was very innocently, someone was asking, like, what makes you a differentiated venture investor? And he was, he was like, I like to get to know entrepreneurs. I get to, I want to understand how they tick. I want to get to know them as humans. And so I don't even have an office in San Francisco. I live in Tahoe. And so I invite entrepreneurs to come up and spend some time with me up in Tahoe, which is four hours from San Francisco. And he's like, and I like to, you know, get to know them over beers in a hot tub. 
And like at the time, You're pregnant. I was pregnant and sitting in the audience. Going Which, by like, the way, you can't not only not drink beer, you can't get in a hot tub. Exactly. I was like, <laughs> I cannot even enter your hot tub. I can't drink your beers. Never mind the fact that you're proposing that people come in swimsuits to like <laughs> to pitch their idea to you. And so, you know, it was one of these things that he, he said not intentionally to be right. discriminatory, but is a really good example of how a very ingrained industry and, you know, very ingrained behavior creates institutional bias. But that's notable that you you say, you know, he was innocently up there saying this, that there wasn't even the recognition from him or probably a majority of the and audience. And that was what was crazy. I was looking around like, did anybody else think that was crazy? And I was going to write a tweet and he's a big Twitter following and I was like, it's not worth getting in like a tweet yeah. war with him about it. But right. I looked around and it, it was, I don't know that anybody else had the same kind reaction. of reaction. But here is something that you did not back down from. Um, Maybe you didn't think that was worth the Twitter war, but you're telling the story now purposefully. You brought up Bill Gurley and not only uh, obviously one of your investors, but an Uber investor. And you wrote a letter, Kat, to Bill Gurley, a strongly, from what I've read, reported a strongly worded letter about uh, uh, Travis Kalanick at Uber and what was going on at Uber when he was CEO and saying, this cannot. I did. Yeah. And it was, that was... um I remember I like was really hemming and hawing about it and I was talking to my husband about it and I was like, it's really not my place. Like, what do I have to do with Uber? I have nothing to do with it. But, um, you know, I just felt so, I feel like such a responsibility and it, I, it kind of weirdly links also to having kids. So like you want your kids to be able to work at a place where they're going to be grown and developed and it's going to be a good workplace. And like, I feel like as a CEO, part of my responsibility is kind of to the young people that are going to be working here and working at the company in years from now. Um, and, you know, I kind of ultimately was like, this is going to be take it or leave it. Bill can listen to me or he cannot listen to me. But, you know, I'm fortunate to be in a place where I can, send him an email you have and his he'll ear. listen. Um, and, you know, I I think it was a really, really hard time for him. And, you know, he, he wasn't sharing with me at the time kind of everything he was going through. But, um, but, you know, I think my perspective added color, I think, to the way that the outside world was seeing the crazy situation he was in. And what so... What did you say? What was your main message to him? Um, I mean, the main message was just, I think, both the responsibility that we have as venture investors and as entrepreneurs in creating not just companies of the future, but also creating company cultures and, um, you know, creating workplaces of the future. Um, and, you know, and also just expressing that, like, I... I just am really disappointed in what the news was reporting and um, that a company like that could exist in this day and age and, um, you know, that I trust him and that I know he's a great person and that he's probably doing everything that he can, but that, you know, it's really disappointing to see that from the outside. So what did he say? Um, so he, he didn't say a whole lot at that moment. I think he shared basically that it was, you know, a stress, it was a very stressful time and, um, but that he appreciated my opinion. And, you know, that was kind of all I heard at that point. And, you know, it wasn't until a lot of other things unfolded and benchmark ended up taking a very bold, very, um, risky and very right, I think, stance around what, you know, around Travis's role in the company. And it wasn't until kind of that whole thing fell out that, you know, I got a little bit more context around what Bill was going through at the time and mm -hmm. how my voice might have added some perspectives for him. Do you think that you helped 
uh, tip the balance? You know, I don't, I don't know where they were in the decision-making process, but, you know, I, I like to think that I certainly didn't hurt, and, mm -hmm. you know, I think... It, you're when glad you're, now? I mean, you vacillated. Are you glad you said something now? I'm, so, I'm really glad that I said something, and I think I would have had a hard time not, and, um, and I'm just really proud also of being able to be, you know, part of... I think be working with Bill, and I'm also just really part of proud of Benchmark because it's an incredibly hard thing to do. And sure, they ri you risk is, a lot. You risk a lot, and Benchmark has been incredibly supportive of me as a founder. And um, I can't imagine how difficult that decision was for them. And you know, I think we're all going to look back and and feel like it was a big, bold, but right thing. This is the I don't even want to just call it a moment anymore. I hope it's not. I was going to say the Me Too moment. It's the Me Too. Moment movement and, uh, you know, the Me Too future. And I wonder what that means to you. Um, it's, you know, I think it's, A, I love how much more conversation that there is. And I think there's a much greater awareness of the role of women in workplaces. And I think, for example, that hot tub thing, like there's no way that at a conference today, yeah. people wouldn't flinch and look around and be like, did that just happen? And right. so I think there's just much greater awareness. And, and, and then I think more recently, there's now just bigger steps that are being taken. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of organizational support around how can we make sure that there's more diversity, um, you know, in the workforce, also in entrepreneurship, also in venture capital. Um, and so, you know, I think at first I was really proud of people who came forward and proud of people who are just talking about it. And then now, you know, I hope that there's that a lot of these initiatives now are leading to change. So you personally, not not that long ago, I think 2013 lived uh, through sexual harassment. So it's I can't speak to the specific situation, um, but, you know, I think I there were this journey was really hard and you know i was really grateful that there were a lot of people that could come forward and did come forward um and you know i am really committed to be helping be part of the solution because i think you know i was it's not been an easy journey for me and you can't speak to it for legal reasons but i can speak to what's been reported and it's been reported that that in 2013 you asked a vc firm to remove one of its principles this was um a six fitch board member, I believe. Uh, not, not a board member. Observer. 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 Due, due to the behavior um, of him that was completely inappropriate. And action eventually was taken, but, but not, as it's been reported, not quickly enough. Um, how, let's talk, and I know you can't get into that, so let's talk about where you are in Silicon Valley overall. Are we, Kat, you've lived through this, you've witnessed it, you've stood up to it, and good for you for doing so, uh, for, for other people. Um, is, is Silicon Valley in a better place on this than a year ago? Um, yes. You know, is it in a, an amazing place? Not, not yet, but it is definitely in a better place. And there's, you know, undeniably, there's, you know, there's workplace dynamics, which are in some ways more solvable because it's more obvious. And then I think there are these other power dynamics that are less obvious um, that are really difficult to navigate. And I think when no one was talking about it, when no one was aware of it, when you had no idea who to talk to, where to go, and when 94% yeah. of venture investors were male, um, wow. you know, there's no... 
it was really, really hard to kind of navigate hard situations. And so I think even just the conversation that's been had mm -hmm. um, is a huge step forward because I think if other people are seeing similar situations arise, A, they know that other people have gone through it yeah. and there are also better resources and places to go. So you mentioned uh, a little bit ago about being a mother and a parent and how that has changed you and affected how you do your work inside and outside of the company. Um, I know for me it has certainly changed how I do my job. It has certainly changed sort of the importance that I place on choosing, you know, I really want to do an in-depth story on this and this is important and I think about sort of what it means, you know, big picture for, for society and my children. Um, you took f a four-month maternity leave. You're pregnant again, planning to do the same yep, this time. I am. Can you talk about the impact that being a parent has on you personally, but also as it's tied to your work? Yeah, I think um, being a parent, I mean, it's had such a broad impact. And um, on the one hand, I, I agree with you of like, I think it really forces you to more to think more about like, what is the culture that I'm creating? What is the impact that I'm having? Um, it also, I think, has forced me to prioritize my own time a lot better, where um, the time that I spend at work is precious and the time that I spend at home is precious. And um, I think it's brought greater awareness, I think, to how I'm spending my time and where I'm spending my time. More deliberately? Much more deliberately. Um, and it is, it's hard to say no, but you know, I, you just have to say no if you're gonna be able to prioritize the things that are important. It's hard to say no, but would you say that it's actually hurt you professionally to have to say no a lot more? If I'm honest, like I think the sad thing is it probably does in some way. You do? You know? I think, I mean, not significantly, but you know, it would be marginally better if I went to whatever and made a connection with somebody. Like it probably would, right? But like if I was gonna be, the reality is I, like you can, you are making trade-offs every day. Yes. And so if I was gonna do 100% what is absolutely maximizing for Stitch Fix every moment of the day, like that's all I would do all day. Yeah. And so, um, but the flip side is I probably wouldn't be a happy person. And so I don't know, but. <laughs> that's important. <laughs> but, Happiness um, is important. But I think it's hard. And I think it's also just the more and more now that we see more women that are in roles where they are having to say no and they are. Um, it's not just women though. My husband says no to a ton. Mm -hmm. a t I mean, last night we had a, a, a thing for my daughter's new school in the fall, fall at 5.30, you know, at this park in Brooklyn, and he skipped a work drinks after this conference to be there, right? Totally. And, and I think my point is more is I think as we see more women that are saying no, I actually do think it makes it more comfortable for men yeah, to say no. I hope so. For men to be leaving the office at 4.30 to yeah, pick up a yeah, kid. And yeah. um, so, you know, I think that the norms are starting yeah. to change. That's good. So I assume Stitch Fixin gives four months parental leave if you got we it. 16 weeks for um, primary caretaker and we do six weeks for a secondary caretaker. So that is men and women if they're primary caretaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a big deal. It is. Costs the company a lot of money, but is it worth it business wise? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think, you know, we have so many women and men who are of childbearing age yeah. where this is going to be an important milestone and we're being able to have a workforce that, you know, is happy and productive and loves working there. Like it, it's, it's competitive and it's also right. Do you know Jen Hyman, I would mm -hmm. assume, of Rent of the Runway? Yeah. So Jen was on, on the podcast a few weeks ago and I wanted to have her on after she wrote that fascinating New York Times op-ed on equalizing benefits for mm -hmm. everyone. And she said that really she and the company were perpetuating income inequality in America is what she wrote, because the benefits that sort of her corporate employees get 
like all of this bereavement leave and, and paid vacation and all and, and maternity and paternity leave, um, her factory workers weren't getting, the, those at the warehouse, those doing the dry cleaning weren't getting. So now she's equalized benefits across the company. Is that something that Stitch Fix does? So we've been doing that since day one. So, you have. <laughs> yeah. But since, you would agree that most don't do that. I, I honestly, like, I didn't, I don't know that I knew that most people didn't do that. A lot when of I, big companies don't do that. When I started the company, it never occurred to me that I would give different benefits to different populations of employees. And so since day one, we've had the same policies across the board. You know, I think there's going to be a difference between an hourly worker, even if they're in our headquarters, but if you're hourly versus your salary, there's difference there's differences that are legal with exempt or non-exempt employees. But with those exceptions, I mean, we have the same maternity policy, we have the same health care, and we've been doing that since the beginning. Do you think that corporate America has an excuse at this point not to do that? If you've been doing it since you were a smaller company building up, I mean, are we getting to a point where that is going to be or should be demanded across the board? I mean, I believe it's the right thing. That's why we've done it at Stitch Fix. And, um, and I think we've been able to demonstrate we've been profitable since 2014. And so, you know, we've been able to run a healthy, profitable business, um, you know, despite allowing people time to spend with their newborn infants. Um, and so, uh, yeah, yes, it is a cost, but I do think that it, there's a huge benefit in terms of the employees that we're able to retain in terms of um, how supported people feel in the workplace. And wanting to go to work there every day. Um, Amazon, threat or opportunity? Um, it's a good question. Longer term, we definitely watch what they do very closely. Um, you know, today, apparel is a huge market, and you know, we have less than one percent share. Amazon has, I think, like eight percent share of apparel. So, ninety some percent of market share in apparel is still out there in other companies, to and grab. largely, totally, and largely in brick and mortar. Um, and so, you know, today, I, I don't think we're competing with them head to head, dollar for dollar. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, of course, in retail, that's it, it's been a source of a lot of innovation, and um, you know, we, we've seen them innovate a lot around how do you get things cheap and fast. Mm -hmm. We're solving the problem of discovery, which we see as a very different kind of challenge right. and a harder you, challenge. You've called it, uh, said at one point Stitch Fix is sort of the anti-Amazon on this front. Do you still think that? In a lot of ways we are. I think, you know, Amazon is amazing if you know exactly what you want to get and you yeah. want to get it cheapest and fastest. They're amazing. At I that. do that. I, I find something online and then I look and I get it through Amazon Prime and it, I usually can get it faster and cheaper, but I have totally. to know exactly the name. If you know exactly. The exact name of what exactly. I'm And for. honestly, we're not going to be good at that. But if you are just like, I want a pair of white jeans. Dress or I want me. something to wear to a wedding. Like that's really hard to yeah. do in kind of a search and filter and sure. reviews environment. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think our strengths are very different than what theirs are. And, so, uh, as you've heard people say before, that makes you a prime. That could make you a prime acquisition target for them. Do you, do you have any interest in that? We're very committed to the path of independence, and you know, I think when we went public, that um, that was part of our path and why we were there. And and today, I think we're you know we're excited about being able to prove to our shareholders what we can do. And um, you know, with the launch of kids and the new businesses that we have, there's a ton of runway ahead of us. And so, you know, we're very committed to this. And path. plus size, I should note as well. Plus size, which is exactly. A year and a half ago. I'm getting the time cue from my producer. We have to wrap <laughs> up in a moment. Best moment building the company. It's so hard to say what the best ultimate was. Um, 
I don't know. I think these like moments of triumph are the ones where where you have venture investors that like had looked at you like you had seven heads and didn't believe <laughs> your story, and then you run into them at a conference and they're like, "I totally missed," and I'm so proud of you. And success when, is the best revenge. It's yeah, and, and not in like a vengeful no. way, but it's just you know to be able to um, to change people's minds, mm. to be able to see employees that um, you know like to be able to see employees that like were on yeah. performance plans and are now amazing and to have seen them grow through that. I think all of those moments where um, it's kind of a triumph and it's a change and um, it's something you didn't necessarily expect, like those are so special. For people who don't know, you're pregnant with your second, a little boy. Congratulations. Thank you. What do you want your children to say about you one day? I just hope they say I'm a great mom and I help them to be great people. And, you know, I think it's simple, but I hope I'm able to do that. Lightning round. Do we have time? Sure. Three minutes. Okay. Rapid fire. First job. First job, I think, was, I can't remember if it was, it was either like a smoothie shop or it was Banana Republic. I worked at both in one summer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but Banana, I think it was most likely Banana Republic at Southdale Mall. Oh, I love Southdale. <laughs> Dream lunch date. Reed Hastings. Favorite designer? I'll say Diane from first and because I'm go. wearing it. We both are. Oh, perfect. Dream client to create a fix for? Ooh. Um, Anyone, men, woman, child. Uh, <laughs> do you want to come back to that? That one's hard. Yes. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll do that at the end. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook? Um, Instagram. Desktop or mobile? Mobile. Favorite tech device? Um, my iPhone. <laughs> East Coast or West Coast? Um, West Coast, but I, this is my, New York is my favorite place to visit. Ideal weekend plans? Um, I, time with my family. We love Sonoma County, so mm. being up in Sonoma and being able to cook and good have wine. fresh produce and good wine. I know I miss the wine. Yes, it's hard. It will come back to you. <laughs> a few, few more months. Who's your hero? I, I know I said Reed Hastings for lunch, but I just, as a CEO, I so look up to him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has transformed a company, done three different business models, um, and he's super humble and just, he's an amazing yeah. person. All right, back to the question. Dream client to create a fix for. Dream client, is, it's um, my son. <laughs> okay. Mostly because I want him to wear what I what, what I want him Good to wear. Good luck with that, mom. <laughs> Finish this sentence for me. I will have succeeded when. Um, when I don't know. When I look at my kids and think that they're just amazing people that I could never be as good as. Can't like thank you and congrats. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.